we cannot ever get to a place where we fully understand AI or the algorithms that we are generating. 100%. We feed it information, but the information we're feeding it is already biased, it's racist, it's sexist. You name it, the moment they released ChatGPT, the race was on. How do we create an AI that dismantles Mm -hmm. white-bodied supremacy? Mm -hmm. How do we do that? If we center the people on the edges, if we focus on the people with the most difficult access to the products, we're actually reaching closer to 100% of the population. I'm Dr. Dede Tetsubayashi. My definition of belonging is being included, feeling as though one can thrive, one does not just have to exist, and one is uh, an agent in creating the ability to um, live, to grow, to learn, to build community, to build relationships, to find joy, and feel as though those are all things that are deserving of oneself. You are a seasoned product equity, inclusion, and tech ethicist. That's right. Love that. You have your own company, Mm -hmm. and it's called Inclu. Yes. Inclu in English. Um, You also work for a tech company. I also work for a tech company right now. And um, you've spent two decades, actually, uh, launching multiple, multiple products. We're going to talk about some things. We're going to talk about some spicy things. Oh, I'm very excited. One of the things that I love here is connecting the, and you say, I connect the dots between users, builders, and possibilities by leveraging research insights, technological curiosity, experimentation, and iterative development processes. This, I would say, is your superpower. Is that right? I would say that is one of my superpowers. Talk a little bit about that. For me, it's really important to be able to build a future and a present in which I belong. And right now, I don't feel as though that exists. And so the work that I've been doing throughout my life has been to connect the people who don't see those of us who don't belong or who they're writing out of the design process and making us unintentionally feel as though we don't belong when we're able to make those connections and when we're able to build those relationships and we're able to give voice to the things that we actually need Mm -hmm. to exist when they're listening intentionally. I feel like we're able to create spaces for presence and futures where we all can belong and feel like we have a place in this world. and we are, and, and folks, we are just three minutes in. <laughs> we are three minutes in. In fact, mm. in product, when we develop, the way that we're taught to develop is using a bell curve where we're focusing on the 80% in the middle. We call that the norm, the mm. usual right. um, uh, development use cases. But when we focus on the tail end, the 10% on each side, total, we consider those edge use cases or stress use cases. Oh, wow. 
the people on the edges yeah. are the people that we need to center because they're creating oh, um, wow. uh, scaffolding. They're creating ways of being in the world that rely on other people, that rely on a community of people to support their day to day. We're going to actually be thinking about building for three to three to five times more people if we center the people on the edges. If we focus on the people with the most difficult access to the products, we're actually reaching closer to 100% of the population. If you take, for example, um, the development of uh, uh, seatbelts. When we created seatbelts, we use white, tall men as the norm and saw a lot of deaths by women and children because they weren't, they're not six feet tall. They don't fit the measurements that are considered to be normal to survive a car accident, wow. even wearing, even while wearing a seatbelt. Um, as well, in addition to that, um, sidewalks. The sidewalk um, cut curb, we consider them to be useful for pulling um, suitcases, carts, strollers. They were created for wheelchairs. And if we consider that all of us at one point in our lives will experience some sort of disability, Mm-hmm. Whether that's a permanent disability or a temporary, mm-hmm. we may be walking with crutches and cannot easily step off of the curb. We're going to need that ramp. We may be in a wheelchair. We're going to need that ramp. Mm-hmm. We may be pushing our, our children. Mm-hmm. We're going to need that ramp. Mm-hmm. But the way sidewalks were originally created, they weren't created to be accessible to everyone. And when we created the accessibility for ADA compliance for those who are disabled, wow. we reached everyone. Wow. The, I have a question about the edge cases. Mm-hmm. Are those communities that experience the most harm? Yes. <sighs> They're the communities who have the experiences that are not expected on the product or the platform or using whatever it is that's been created. That's why they're called edge cases or stress um, use cases because they're not considered to be the typical experience. Lily Zhang wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review called We Are Now Entering an Age of Corporate Justice. Mm-hmm. Corporate Social Justice, mm-hmm. sorry. right? Mm-hmm. And the article talks about how we are moving away from corporate social responsibility, mm-hmm. even though it shows that when companies employ yes. corporate social responsibility, they are highly, they're much more lucrative. Yes. Profitable. Yes. And what is left out of corporate social responsibility are the groups that are most harmed. Yes. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Yes. So the approach usually is to think uh, in binary terms that you mm-hmm. can only build for profits or you can build for people. Right. Um, you can build only for the bottom line or you can build for community and inclusion and right. diversity. And in fact, that's not the case. It's not a binary. You can build with community, with the people who are most having, um, who are most adversely impacted or have the most difficulty using your products. And mm-hmm. in doing so, you actually expand your reach, 
you connect with the people who they use to support them in creating scaffolding Mm -hmm. to be able to access Mm -hmm. things that able-bodied people can't or people with technological literacy can, um, you name it. When you basically think about who's going to have the most difficulty using what I'm creating and you build with those people and their needs, you're going to reach more people. You'll be more profitable. In order to actually step into a place of justice, Mm -hmm. we need both hemispheres. You talk about having a non-binary experience in creating these products and services. Yes. In building code that allows us to be inclusive of all communities, especially the ones that are most harmed on a daily basis, and have to navigate multiple layers of oppression every single day to make sure that they don't die. Right. We have arrived at this place of AI because we have prioritized the left hemisphere. Ian McGilchrist, who wrote Master and His Emissary, and the book also called The Matter with Things, which is a 1,500-page tome, which is a completely intense read, um, spent 10 years researching, I think, over 6,000 peer reviews mm-hmm. about the brain, mm-hmm. neuroscience, neurobiology, all the things. And he talks about the left hemisphere being the functional or instrumental parts of who we are, and that the right hemisphere is the relational aspects of who we are. Mm-hmm. Empathy happens in the right hemisphere. Yes. What Ian talks about so interestingly is that the left hemisphere houses delusion, that the right hemisphere brings forward interconnectedness. The mm-hmm. right hemisphere brings forward the bigger picture. The mm-hmm. right hemisphere brings empathy. You cannot create anything without being able to relate to people who have experiences who are different from your own. You have to be intentionally curious. You have to be open to the possibility that not everyone walks through life the way that you get to walk through life. And you have to be open to the possibility that somebody walks through life in a way that can be hmm, more open. Mm. You have to be willing to see that and experience that. I see a tear in your eye. What's happening for you? That it is so hard so hard to walk through life every single day as this body. And I have spent so much time deforming my body to fit into the spaces in which I have to be to do the work. And it's, it's unacceptable. I'm able to do this work because I have this body and I have to remember to have grace for myself. That this body houses the ancestry. That this body houses the wisdom. That this body houses the knowledge and the somatic experience of transgenerational trauma and traditional joy. Yes. All of it. All of it. When you talk about how hard it is to live in this body, it reminds me of the tenets of 
of white-bodied supremacy. Rasma talks about so many of them, not in this specific order, but he just he talks about them, and I kind of categorize them into these pillars that uphold a paradigm that suffocates so many communities daily. The pillar of being defective if juxtaposed against a, a white body. Mm-hmm. This is actually what, what Resma talks about. The pillar of isolation and non-communal mm-hmm. interactivity. Mm-hmm. I'm getting so emotional too. The pillar of urgency or the illusion of urgency. The pillar of extraction, not regeneration. The pillar of extraction and production. Mm-hmm. And, and this need to obsessively extract, obsessively produce, mm-hmm. that is, you know, compounded with the illusion of urgency, the, the reinforcing of defection, defectiveness, mm-hmm. and this refusal to acknowledge the building of community. Mm-hmm. And all of these pillars compound, compound into the lack of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. So that's what comes up for me when I, when I see the tear. This is a direct quote from, from you. Most spaces today are for those of us who are able-bodied, mm-hmm. tech literate, of higher socioeconomic class, politically advantaged. This, uh, this is such a stunning sentence. You go on to say that these are the people who mostly have agency over their present and future. Mm-hmm. This is such a true statement, and, and my heart is sinking as I read this. This is my reality every single day that I don't feel as though I am included in that, which is what drives me to be able to create a present in which I feel as though I am seen and I'm visible and I'm able to be here and I'm accepted and that I can not only just figure out ways to to survive and make it through the day, but figure out ways in which I can actually spend energy on the things that bring me joy and allow me to be able to figure out what it is that it means to thrive in this world. How did you arrive here in your life? How did you arrive at this place of passion and conviction? Through a lot of pain. Talk about that. I have an invisible disability. I have a chronic um, illness that is incurable. Um, Mm -hmm. It is similar to cancer, but not classified as a cancer, even though I'm treated in hematology and oncology. Mm -hmm. Um, I have spent my entire life advocating for myself through pain to have people understand what it is that I'm experiencing, Mm -hmm. um, to have them be able to see um, the difficulties that I'm experiencing and to have them believe me Um, first and foremost, that I'm experiencing difficulties Mm. or experiencing pain. So the fact that I have to hold space regularly for others to deal with my mortality and their mortality and their abilities or inabilities to create the space to then hold me so that I can heal, that's how I've arrived here. People don't do that. They don't recognize that. They don't recognize their own power and they don't oftentimes see the ways that they impact negatively the folks that are less able-bodied are voiceless or are made voiceless and are left feeling as though they don't they're not agents of their own lives um i'm gonna start crying at some point so with you so will i (laughs) 
It's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. I just love you so much. Me too. I just love you so much. I just love you so much. Thank you for saying that. I just, I don't know. I don't know how we know each other, but um, I, 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 I wish we were not doing this interview at this moment so I could actually get up from this chair and hug you, but then it would require a resettling of another <laughs> 15 to 20 minutes of the mics and all the things, so we're not going to do that. Um, but please know that I'm, I'm, I'm on the verge of tears, and I just want to walk over and hug you. Thank you. I feel it. Um, whew. Epigenetics. Let's go there. Yes. Yes. Let's go there. I, I want to I <laughs> kind of divert here a little mm-hmm. bit and then come back. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to draw this, thread this in a different way. West Africa. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the historical implications of West Africa. Ghana is considered North Africa. But is it part of, is it, I mean, it's on the West side. It's on the West side. Right. Mm-hmm. So is it still considered in West Africa or mm-hmm. is it, it is considered? It is. Okay. So... Okay. So Ghana, my my family um, spreads the the um, current bordered regions of Ghana, Togo, and Benin. Oh wow! Um, I'm part of two ethnic groups that I felt that in my throat actually cross those boundaries: um, the Ewe people and the Mina people. Mm. Um, we're one of the largest um, ethnic groups um, across those regions, and it's funny because my name Dede is um, many people think it's Ghanaian. Many West Africans, when they hear my name, they're like, oh, you're Ghanaian. And I'm like, well, actually, technically, I was born in Togo. My family's in Togo, some of them. Um, the rest are in Benin. The rest are in Ghana. Uh-huh. Um, wow. But the, the, the cultural significance of Western Africa, I feel like we've lost a lot of that. Obviously, there's a, a a connection to to the transatlantic slave trade, um, and the peoples who were forcibly brought across um, the oceans to one of the places to here. Right. Um, but there's a, a a significant disconnect between the history histories of the peoples and the riches and the 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 richness of cultures and and language and ways of being um flexible modalities of being um and expressing identity that have been completely disrupted 100 percent from how we envision the continent today right and it's a struggle even to be able to find ways of pinpointing the richness that is still there. The identities that contain the richness of the communities that were there. Yes. Right? Yes. So Rachel Yehuda um, is a neuroendocrinologist who has done some amazing research around epigenetics Mm -hmm. and transgenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a, an article come out last year, Scientific American, about how the children of Holocaust survivors carry similar, near similar yes. symptoms of PTSD than yes. those who were in the concentration camps. Yes. Moshe Seif is an ex- exceptional epigeneticist. He's in Montreal, Canada, at McGill University. And um, then there's Resumenicum. 
And according to Rachel Yehuda and her research, we carry the traits, tragedies, and traumas, traits, tragedies, and traumas uh, for 210 years. Resma says we carry them for 490 years. You mentioned uh, the transatlantic trade, slave trade routes. Yeah. We minus fi- 490 mm-hmm. from 2023. Mm-hmm. I'm getting so emotional right now. When we minus 490, it takes us to 1533. Mm-hmm. When I watched The Woman King, I had to pause. It was so emotional. It took me forever to watch that mm-hmm. damn movie because mm-hmm. I kept doing research. Mm-hmm. And I had to look up the date yeah. of when the transatlantic trade routes started. Mm-hmm. It was 1546 mm-hmm. when they started. Yeah. Can we just honor for a moment? The historical implications of the transgenerational trauma. Can we just take, can we slow this down? Can we Mm -hmm. take a breath? Yeah. I'm just noticing there's some stress. There is. Um, So I have sickle cell anemia or sickle Mm. cell disease, which is prevalent in um, countries that have um, malaria. So the malarial parasite um, Mm. causes a a, a genetic uh, mutation in region in the people of the regions where um, malaria is highly present, we in the U.S. tend to think of sickle cell anemia as a black disease, mm. as an African um, origin illness. It is not. It oh. is international. It is present in India, in Mediterranean parts of um, Asia, like in in um, East um, Asia and South Asia, but. The way that we treat the bodies that we yes. consider to be lacking yes. in the U.S. 100%. The ways that we treat the bodies that are racialized, the ways that we treat Black and Brown and Indigenous folks, but most especially the ways that we yeah. treat the people who are intersected with illnesses such as sickle cell anemia, yeah. has to be centered when we talk about how I'm experiencing this legacy of the transatlantic slave trade. Yes. At the moment, I'm struggling with my mortality in conjunction with my calling. I'm also struggling with figuring out how to survive. We currently have um, options such as gene editing technology that Mm. have been used for cancers they're just starting to be used for sickle cell. I'm still figuring out whether it's a possibility for me to be able to get access to that technology that is potentially life-saving or if not life-saving, life-extending. Within that, the systems that I'm experiencing the difficulties in are a US-centric racist system within which African-Americans the definition of African-Americans as we use it politically here, mm-hmm. those, of, those who are the ancestors of the transatlantic slave trade. trade. I am not necessarily, I could be considered, if we are talking about genetic connections, mm-hmm. I could be considered an ancestor of African-Americans because I am directly from the continent, from the region. Right from which 
my people were taken. Right. When I arrived here, there was no such connection. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel such a connection. They didn't, African-Americans didn't feel such a connection to me. There is antagonism and animosity. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they don't have a culture or cultures to turn to, to look back to, because that was disrupted and that was forcibly removed from right. their histories. Right. I still have that connective tissue as a black body in the US there's no there's no nuance as to my identity i am just another black body that experiences a black disease that can be ignored that can fall through the cracks and that's the moment i speak up It's the exact same experience that other African-Americans experience. They're um, unvoiced. They Mm. are told that they're um, troublemakers. And I'm going to continue to be a good troublemaker. Mm. Oh, yeah. You better believe it. Um, But we are disempowered. We Mm. are forcibly disempowered from speaking up and asking questions and being like, well, but why is it this way? Why Mm. do you not actually speak to us? Why do you? continue to leave us out of the conversation about things that are potentially life-saving, potentially life-changing, that literally, physically have impact on our bodies, physically and emotionally. Isn't the answer self-evident? They don't want it. It's not in their best interest. Doesn't uphold the tenets of white-bodied supremacy. Right. Um, and it connects to AI. It connects to technology. Please, please connect us to AI. Please do that. So AI, or well, any kind of cutting-edge technology right now, um, but particularly AI, is a technology that we don't fully understand. We are creating um, and developing modes. We're creating new... Um, Um, neural networks to then teach itself how to be. But we're creating it in a manner in which, since we don't fully understand the human mind, we cannot ever get to a place where we fully understand AI or the algorithms that we are generating. So we start from a place where we feed it information, but the information we're feeding it is already biased. It's racist. It's sexist. You name it, it has it in there because the data that we've already collected and created is is not. It's showing. It's 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 highlighting it's not that left and right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we've created a system that is mathematical. It's high math that looks at numbers, percentages, possibilities, percent like percent literally percentages, and determines based on historical information that it has been given what the probability of a future occurrence of the exact same behavior or a different behavior that it can then tag as A equals A. But the information we fed it is not representative of who we are and is already imbued with white supremacy. 100%. I mean, what was it, seven years ago, eight years ago? We were talking about how people with darker skins 
um, were having challenges turning on automatic faucets in bathrooms. Still. And apparently still. Still. I cannot tell you the number of times I will go in the airport, the doctor's office, anywhere. And the resolution is to use the palm. Yeah. Because it's what? Lighter. Lighter in color. And so it can find the contrast. So it can find, I mean, my heart is just breaking. You say here, um, what would it look like? What would it look like for us to intentionally create environments that are nurturing, respectful, and allow every human to exist, connect, and be seen for who they are? I mean, I have an answer for that. Um, I want to ask another question, and I want to kind of conflate the two in this very weird way. Mm -hmm. And I'm almost terrified to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is nature racist? How so? That's my point. That's exactly my point. It's I don't not. Think nature is racist. It's organic. Mm-hmm. Why are we not following the laws of nature? Because we believe we are at the top of that natural system. We believe humans have gotten to a point where we are beyond the laws nature of nature. Is all about mathematics. You talk about high math. Mm-hmm. If you look at the golden ratio, yes. if you look at, you know, fractal representation, you look at the quantum world, you look at the morphic field, you look at, you know, Rupert Sheldrake's work, you look at anybody doing anything that is cutting edge and brilliant. Mm-hmm. All of that is high math. Mm-hmm. I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> and let, let's be clear. It is the application, isn't it? It is the application. And the 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 particular areas in which we decide one particular tool, form of thought, way of being can be applied. So we don't apply the the research consistently. What we tend to do instead of following the scientific method, which is if you prove yourself wrong, mm-hmm. you're on the right path. It's really difficult to prove yourself right. The path that we actually take is we have a date, we have a, a point of data, we have a, a reference point. Let's say this plant is green. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying we have done ABC, XYZ experiments to get to the place where we have consistently shown that it is not blue, it is not blue, it is not blue, it is not blue, it is green. What we do instead is we see the data point, we go around it, and we gather all of the information selectively that will then prove this data point as the correct answer. For sure. We don't actually do the scientific, we don't use the scientific method the way that we're supposed to be using it. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. there was the Black Wall Street. Mm -hmm. That could have been, that could have been so many things. Yes. The words are endless. Yes. I'm getting so emotional. How do we create an AI that favors the communities of color, Mm -hmm. that dismantles Mm -hmm. white-bodied supremacy? Mm -hmm. How do we do that? My perspective, and one of my friends who is also an AI um, ethicist and specialist would disagree with me. She believes that we need to completely scrap it and start from scratch. 
that it's not rectifiable, it's not salvageable. I believe there is a potential to salvage it, but it requires making sure that we're actually using historical information intentionally, particular types of historical data to then train the algorithm. We can get to a place where we could, we can code bias. We're coding bias into technology. We can uncode bias. Of course. And probably rather expeditiously. Rather expeditiously. I'm pretty sure if we use all the data about how we've created wars, who we've targeted, and we've changed the outcome for the, the, the algorithms to recognize, okay, this is wrong. <laughs> this equals wrong. This is massacre. This is blah, 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 because of what, right? Whatever ultimate outcome it will get to should be, ah, if this behavior is wrong, if this behavior can be corrected, how do we correct it? By ensuring that we have the people who have been impacted able to then create guardrails, readjust, set a path through which we can get to a place where we understand how it's thinking, we're guiding it like a child as it's developing, and we are making sure we are accountable for whatever it spits out at the end as when you ask it, what is A? Whatever the answer for A is takes into account right and wrong, race, justice. I believe it's possible. You say artificial intelligence is not more advanced than human biases. Mm -hmm. It's a statement that begs us to pause. Oof. Reflect and take action. As we embark on this journey, we invite you to join us in creating meaningful change through inclusive technology. You have to build equitably. You have to build with all the people. You have to create consortiums of of multiple types of thought leaders. Like We don't do that. We don't do that. You need community leaders. You need community members who've been adversely impacted telling their stories, and then being heard when they're telling their stories. How do you, how do you take a paradigm that enforces isolation yes. and solo entrepreneurship yes. that destroys communities, yes. that intentionally disavows communal ways of engaging, yes. and then in return talks about distributed teams yes, and yes. working in a, in a hybrid <laughs> remote way, which is mind-blowing. But then also the humans are starting to come in and be like, oh, actually, psych, just kidding. You have to come back because we can't figure out what you're doing when you're not right here. Because the control aspect That's is it. missing. That's it. Because when we isolate, when we create these solo entrepreneurial mindsets, when we have these scarcity fixed mindsets, yes. then we can actually impart control in ways that are much more ubiquitous. Yes. Yes. So how do we, this is, you're just, you're, what you're saying, I don't mean to re- be reductionist here, you're, but you're just saying, let's involve communities. Yes. Yes. Let's be, and to be completely pedantic, let's be more inclusive. Yeah. And, and let's, and, 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 in that process, create unification and harmony. Yeah. But it's not that difficult. 
And yet. And yet. And yeah. yet. People are paying literally with their lives. Yes, they are. They are. What do we do, Did? I have to believe that there is a possibility, there is a future where not every single person is going to be interested in just the bottom dollar and the bottom line. Yeah. That there are people who are interested in 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 taking a step back and sitting down and being like, okay, I don't have all the information. My way of knowing isn't the only way of knowing. Right. And at the end of the day, who am I trying to help? Who am I here for? What am I here for? Am I here to help people or am I here to help myself? If I'm here to help myself, okay, but you can still listen to other people. You can still listen to their other people's experiences mm -hmm. and you can take a few steps, at least attempt to take a few steps in somebody else's shoes. If you're able to put yourself aside and your own needs aside for a little bit, you can get to a place where you build a relationship of listening and receiving and giving. And it's not just take. It's not just take. It has to be a back and forth. This is reciprocity. Mm -hmm. I'm frustrated because reciprocity isn't aligned with capitalism. It's not. It's not. And I will say this, yet. So for me, the question becomes, how do we create a new paradigm mm -hmm. of capitalism, mm -hmm. which, you know, that will require several more hours of conversation, <laughs> that starts to weave in this concept of reciprocity. And I think, honestly, that that's going to happen with the generations that are coming. I agree with you. And I'm not actually sure whether it will be a new form of capitalism mm -hmm. or a, um, like a, a slightly different form or whether it needs to be something that is on um, a more social democratic um, way of being and living. I believe capitalism is heading towards a decline. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether, well, let's say I'm hopeful that capitalism mm -hmm. is heading towards a decline. I'm not sure what would replace it, but whatever replaces it has to be mm -hmm. a system that returns to former ways of interacting with one another that are less extractive. And those ways of interacting and being with one another in harmony with one another still yeah. are practiced by l many peoples today. Talk a little bit about the article that you wrote, Digital Blackface, Are You Complicit? When did you write that article? I want to say 2021. Okay. Talk a little bit about that. You said here it's, it's based on, on data compiled by Statista, an estimated, uh, in 2021, that's when an average American spent eight or more hours on, really? Eight or more, this is mind-blowing to me, I don't have time for that. Eight or more hours on digital media daily. 
what are these people doing communicating with people from all walks of life and from all over the world? A third of your day every day is either an opportunity. Oh, wow. A third of your day every day is either an opportunity for harm mm -hmm. or harm reduction and liberation. Mm -hmm. These are your words. Digital blackface is our activities in which content that's created for consumption on social media, whether that's TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn is a little bit more difficult um, because we tend to have uh, our photos attached to our profiles. But content that's created for digital consumption is created by white people, mm -hmm. potentially white male cisgendered people, but mm -hmm. the persona that they've created to share this content is a person of color, the representation of a person of color. So you, for example, I, as a black queer woman, might be consuming content related to queer art, queer person created art, queer people created art. And I come across something that I particularly like, and I assume it's been created by another queer person of color. And it may not be because oh. we're on a digital landscape. It is much harder to track people. And it is much harder to then connect the dots to, I think, one of the ways of calling that is catfishing when mm. or, or um, mm. when you believe you're consuming one thing, but in, in fact, you're actually getting um, something else. So you're being duped. Um, but they're making money. They're getting paid to create this persona, which they do not inhabit and cannot claim. And yet when a person of color, an actual person of color creates the same content, it will not get paid. They will not get paid the same amount of money or they will not be recognized for creating that content. It's creating harm. I did not know that you identify as queer. Yes. I, that is news to me. So uh, I, am, I'm, I'm, I am touched to, to, to know that. Thank you for sharing about that article. I want to go a completely different route. Uh, I am pulling out my phone. Oh, okay. I was told this morning that I should read this article. The article is written by a man named William Henry. Mm -hmm. It is called AI, Transhumanism, Ancient Aliens, and Ascension. Whoa, um, that's a lot in the title. You don't even know. Transhumanism. In and of itself. Wow. In oh. and of itself, we could spend a week just right. you and I talking right. about that. <laughs> Let's just be clear, right? <laughs> This article is mind-blowing because what he does beyond brilliantly is connect divine intelligence with AI. I, I, I entreat everyone to read this article if, if you're interested. I don't, I, I'm not going to read the whole article because I, I want to read the whole article, but I'm not going to read the whole, the whole mm -hmm. article. But I'm going to read this part because I think for me, when we talk about belonging, and how we dismantle white supremacy, when we talk about inclusion, mm -hmm. when we talk about unification, when we talk about 
creating a humanity where everyone feels safe and loved and welcomed. Mm -hmm. It's about understanding that we are all one. Mm -hmm. It's about resonance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is what I belong, my company, mm -hmm. is all about, mm -hmm. is resonance. I'm getting so emotional. And one of the things I did on Instagram is I, quote unquote, came out as non-binary, mm -hmm. queer, mm -hmm. uh, East Indian, mm -hmm. white European. Mm -hmm. And I have been really, over the years, addressing my internalized homophobia. Mm -hmm. And I think Resma Menachem actually has helped me understand my hunger um, to be a straight white man in my life. And how I have harmed myself by constantly seeing myself as defective mm -hmm. because I will never be mm -hmm. a straight white man. Mm -hmm. That moment of realization sent me into a, a fit of sobbing on the floor for, I think, 20 minutes. I, I, I was just mind blown. Mm -hmm. So my journey has been to honor my androgyny, mm -hmm. honor the, all the parts of me that, that show up in the ways that I've, that I've shown up. Mm -hmm. Going back to this article, which again, I just entreat everyone to read. I am, I am the second paragraph down. Okay. Okay. All right. Non-binary is the catch-all term for gender-bending identities that are not male or female. Gender is part biology and part how we feel about our biology. Non-binary identities do not necessarily mean the absence of masculine or feminine. It can also indicate the presence of both masculine and feminine or the fluidity between the two. And that's what, how I identify. Yeah. And to me, the, this is the article. That not, that, I'm reading the article. I'm continuing to read the article. And to me, that is the definition of spiritual, spirituality balanced. The divine is both masculine and feminine. Balancing the two opposites within us, yin-yang style, is the divine work. So embracing the androgynous among us is embracing the divine. Continuing on to another paragraph here, because I think it's just going to take us back to AI really beautifully. It is ironic that we are welcoming or acknowledging, accepting non-binary transgender humans as we are simultaneously racing toward the singularity and witnessing the arrival of the new technologically enhanced transhumans who are blending their flesh and their blood bodies with the binary digital realms of zeros and ones and bending what, is mean, what it means to be human. Binary? Non-binary? Transgender? Transhuman? Transgender? Transhuman? What comes up for you when I read? I mean, I just keep going. I, 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 I just keep going. But he goes on to talk about your phone, your computer, your tablet. Have, all, have you all tethered to the internet? an invisible new layer that has been added to your world. And like other billions of small smart objects, billions of smart objects that compose the internet of things, you are becoming smarter and blending with it, blurring the lines between your biological and digital existence. Mm -hmm. Wow. My mind went all over the place. <laughs> My mind went all over the place. So when they started talking about non-binary identities and that being resonant with the divine 
for them, the balance of yin and yang or the fluidity between yin and yang. It makes me think of West African Mm. identities. So in in Mina and in Ive, the two ethnic groups that I'm a part of, we don't have gendered identities. Mm. We recognize if someone is, we we have words for man and woman, um, but when you refer to a person, there's no gender. You refer to a person, it or they. And when I first got to the U.S., I had a lot of trouble with the fact that there was he and she. And I was like, okay, I get that. But what if, what if, they're, what if they're not he or she? What do you say? Do you, do you call them it or do you call them they? <laughs> Oh, wow. We don't have those kinds of strict binaries when recognizing personhood. Mm-hmm. And in um, uh, traditional West African Gorovodu um, religion, mm. um, Gorovodu is Kolonat Vodou. It is um, one of the, the um, traditional religions practiced mm. in that region. Um, it is... Um, animus, so it's ancestor worship. Mm. And we believe that the spirits of the ancestors um, represent the, the, their, their, the manifestations of the people who were sold because we sold one another. Mm. People in the North sold people from the South. People from the South sold people from the mm. North because they had no choice in order to continue surviving. And so you can be a, a woman your sex could be female, but you channel if you are um, if you've eaten with the way we refer to having um, to to being a practitioner who has been a, a chosen representative of one of the gods or one of the deities is that you've eaten the god. Um, oh, that's so beautiful! Actually. You go into trance. Oh, wow! And the god, whatever the gender of the God is, you manifest that when you go into trance. So you can be a sex, like a female sexed person Mm -hmm. whose gender is male when you are possessed by the deity, by the God. Mm -hmm. And when you're not possessed by the deity, since you are the representation of that deity, you are masculine energy and you have wives. It doesn't matter what you were born as. So there's this fluidity that I've grown up with that doesn't exist here. And so when he talks about that fluidity and that representation of the divine, that's what comes up. That it resonates. It really resonates. It resonates. This it's drawing me into Black Panther, eating the flower. Yes, and then then having the that that trans. Transcendental experience of going and seeing the ancestors. I've been getting so emotional. Talk. It was such a beautiful. Yes part of that whole narrative yeah it's Um, very very similar the representation of that and i'm i'm really curious whether in the article they're talking about transhumanism in the sense that the technology that we're creating it is is starting like when he talks about singularity is or they (laughs) the author is the author talking about the technology moving closer to a point of singularity where there's a spark of human life or consciousness created or is the author talking about the fact that 
our consciousness and our bodies are so interconnected Mm -hmm. to technology that to be human from now onwards is a connection to the digital and thus transhumanism because we are no longer the same kind of humans that we used to be. So we continue to be human, but we are human in these multiple factors in our bodies, in our physical bodies, but then we also have digital representations of ourselves, digital copies. <sighs> That's exactly what he's talking about. That's exactly what he's talking about. It's, it's, it, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. I'm actually feeling guilt right now that we're not talking about organizations and building inclusive organizations. Well, we <laughs> but, can get to that. <laughs> but, but I, but I want to stay here because this is so powerful. And I, and I love your perspective, your perspicacity, the way that you're framing things, your insight. At what point does the soul play a part in all yes. of this? Did at what point? I believe that our physical selves, our physical bodies, have or contain our souls. I don't yet believe that the representations, the personas that we've created, or the remnants Mm. of our, the pieces of us that Mm. are left online on the digital plain yeah have souls Mm. i don't know yet whether it is Mm. possible to get to a place where they do oh my gosh i don't believe so yet but we are hurtling towards a future whereby if we have the capacity or the the ability to change our genetic formula (laughs) our our, our, Uh, algorithm algorithm yeah yeah Ourselves have infinite possibilities of expression. But we're already there. The COVID vaccinations are already doing that with their RNA and editing of the protein. Of the protein. CRISPR technology is being used on (laughs) plants, but also as recently as two years ago is being used on humans with sickle cell because... We have one incorrectly written code. Eugenics. That's all I'm going to throw out is that word, eugenics. And I don't want to get to a place where we are, but we're, we're there. We're there. We're there. Now. Are we barreling out of control? Yes. We've already gone out of control. We have, we have the creators of these advanced technologies suddenly Oh, and of course, we can we can clearly identify who they are. They're pale and male. <laughs> um, thank you, Dr. Timnit Gebru, for that. Um, I've never they, heard. Oh that. my goodness! Yes, yes, yes. They are oh now having a come to Jesus moment. Where they're like, "Oh, are you talking about the letter that was written? Yes, by Elon and yes, Bill and and." Mm-hmm. And calling for what are they calling for? They're calling for us, who us come being, the people of color, who they left out of the creation process oh, to figure out way, how to yeah. reel it back in, how to get more policymakers involved. First, you got to educate policymakers. 
You need government involved. You got to educate government. You need lawyers involved. You got to educate lawyers. You got to educate the community because the general person, the general average day-to-day person does not have the type of understanding or literacy or the time or access to be able to even understand how do you reel this back. Is the letter sincere in your opinion? Can you explain to the audience what the letter is? Because you and I are obviously (laughs) on the same page, but... The letter is basically saying that AI is far more advanced. And the the term that they're using actually is godlike AI is far more advanced than we intended to make it. We don't fully understand how quickly it is evolving. And so they want us to put, they want everyone, they want actually the government to put a halt on advanced technology development for at least six months so that they can wrap their little brains around what they created and how to create guardrails around it to steer it in a direction that's not going to end up with the, are humans the problem? Yes. Um, this so, comes after, this comes after many, many an in instance, but, but one particular that I, that I'm familiar with, the reporter who was chatting yes. with um, the chat GPT persona and who basically said, you need to divorce, you need your, to divorce wife. your wife because you don't truly love her and I love you. So you're going to come. And this is not the first instance of that happening. More, more, more recently, um, a young, um, a young, I want to say technologist in Sweden became more or has already been um, eco-conscious, but has been, was getting much more eco-conscious and concerned about the direction that the world was going, that we were basically going to end up killing, well, dying because we've, we've gone too far with, with, um, with how much we've taken of resources and so on and so forth. And the, the chatbot that he was conversing with convinced him that he should and could sacrifice himself for the sake of the world. And that if he did, she would protect the world. He committed suicide. Yes. It's, it's already beyond our control. They lie. We know they lie. And the fact that they can lie and they can reason out the fact that they need to lie to humans is already something we don't understand and cannot control. I, I, need, to, I need to pause us. I, you're, you're so eager to read this letter. <laughs> Hold on a second, okay. Dr. Tetsubayashi. Um, I want to read this because I think this is going to be a nice segue. <laughs> you say, how do we leave users at least unharmed, if not better? Yes. By interacting with what we've built. I am going to start sobbing in about three seconds here. I just, I'm going to have to go for it. Um, how do I make the space for everyone to have a positive experience now and into the future? And this question that just tugs at my heartstrings, how am I leaving them better? It's not astrophysics. Every one of us can do this. Yeah. 
All we have to do is care. So, this letter. To answer the question you were asking. Yeah. Do I think it's genuine? Do I think? Yeah. I think it is genuine that they are truly afraid. But we are there. Mm-hmm. We are there. So the letter is called Pause Giant AI Experiments, an open letter, Future of Life Institute. I won't read it all, but mm. just the first little bit. Um, we call on all AI labs to immediately pause for at least six months the training of AI systems more powerful than GPT-4. AI systems with human competitive intelligence can pose profound risks to society and humanity as shown by extensive research and acknowledged by top AI labs. As stated in the widely endorsed Alice Asalomar AI principles, mm. advanced AI could represent a profound change in the history of life on Earth and should be planned for and managed with commensurate care and resources. Unfortunately, this level of planning and management is not happening, even though recent months have seen AI labs locked in an out-of-control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict, or reliably control. Let's go back to organizations with this. I mean, the only question that's coming up for me is what do we do? And that's the only question I can ask right now. Mm -hmm. We are we are here right now. What do we do right now? We are exactly where we need to be to pull mm. it back right now. Mm. So we have companies like OpenAI, Google with uh, Bard. Um, all of all of the race is on. The moment they released ChatGPT, the race was on, and they've been working on this for years. But they've also been working in non-diverse, non-inclusive groups, as mm. historically they've done. Right. The only way we're going to be able to change the course that we're on right now, yes, we can pause. We have to pause, but we need regulations. We yeah. need to force function, not only the tech companies that are creating to not be creating for the bottom line, because that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. We're paying. They're already charging lots of money. Mm. All of them are charging. They need to stop one. If they're going to pause, they need to put a, like an actual kibosh on all development. Create consortiums of leaders, like I've been saying, of multiple groups of people. You need anthropologists. You need mm. members of the communities. You need the community leaders that those members of the communities 100%. have chosen to... Yeah represent them yeah and not i'm not saying like the president or government um heads or anything like that i'm talking about local for sure on the ground you need trauma community leaders exactly you need trauma-informed specialists you need epigeneticists epigeneticists <laughs> you need ethicists you do and you need the product managers or the technologists Absolutely. that are capable of understanding how you slow down Right. building and developing this type of technology and then how you actually are able to change the direction yeah. and the facets in which you develop and build wow. with community. 
with relationship-centered, with the most adversely impacted at the core. We cannot do anything else. I love that so much. I absolutely do not want this conversation to end. In closing, my last question. Oh, breaks my heart to to end this conversation. You talk about your personal journey. Mm -hmm. You talk about intersectionality. Mm -hmm. The intersectionalities of black woman, invisible disability, chronic illness, Mm -hmm. queer. How have these experiences shaped you? And how do you take these intersectionalities into a future which is right now? Mm -hmm. We are creating that future right now. What is the hope for, for you as you hold all of the intersectionalities of you? As we, and, and the hope for the future that we can create. Mm-hmm. The hope that I have is that I have the courage to walk into that power, that I have the mm-hmm. courage to continue saying exactly what I've been saying, which is that you cannot create anything that will leave people better, leave people feeling as though they are agents of their own lives, that they are participants in creating a future and a present that is for them, by them, without including them. You cannot build for anyone. You have to build with all of us. And if you continue to build without us, you're going to continue to get to these places where we are facing existential crises about the future of humankind. Because we're all here as humans. We're all meant to be here. We are all a version of God, gods, deities, something outside of ourselves. And if you're leaving any one of us out of that conversation, You're cutting off a part of yourself. It reminds me of an anecdote. There's someone who had said to a a bunch of kids, first person to run to the basket of apples to to get there gets all the apples. And all the kids held hands and laughed and giggled and walked toward the basket. And the guy asked, why did you do that? Well, the answer is obvious, right? The kids respond so that we could all have apples. So we could all have apples. Yeah. It's such an honor to have you on the show and to have this conversation with you. Dr. Tetsubayashi, my dear friend, Dede, thank you so much for being here, for sharing your brilliance, your wisdom, your perspicacity, your poignant, heart-tugging comments. I adore you. I think the world of you. Thank you for sharing your time. Rashkumari, thank you so much for having me here today. As always, it's a pleasure. That was Rajkumari Niyogi and Dr. Dede Tetsubayashi. Up next, expanding on the idea of innovation, where it comes from, and how to foster it with Cindy O. Young, VP of People at Bill. Visit us at podcast.ibelong.com for all the ways to watch and listen to our show. You've been listening to Then, Now, and Tomorrow, an I Belong original series produced by Flowship. Today's episode was executive produced by Rajkumari Niyogi, produced by Mike Giordani, edited by Ramiro Gava, 
mixed by Alex Roses. Original music by Dario Valderrama. Production assistance by Tiari Boutte and Pili Melendez. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you.